so I'll be honest with you guys. It's been very stretching for me to get up here and teach you guys. You see, when Hans asks me to fill in for him, the first thing I always say, my first response is, well, let me think about it. Um, And it's not that I don't want to help out, because I do. Um, The truth is that I'm worried that if I start poking around in the Word, I'm going to find something that's convicting, and I'm either going to have to respond in obedience or stand in front of you guys as a hypocrite. Neither of them are very comfortable options. Um, But I'm grateful Uh, You guys have been so gracious and encouraging as I've been up here to share uh, in the past. You guys have been um, very loving and gracious. And I feel, honestly, really empowered. It's empowering to be part of a a church body that's loving and supportive. And it's really encouraged me to tackle those convictions that I've wrestled with head on. So, when I prepared for this teaching, it was no different. I wrestled with a lot of conviction in my heart about how I was living my life. And as Hans said, the last couple of weeks— I've really been checking my fruit to see areas in my life where there's good fruit, areas in my life where the fruit's rotten, spoiled. And then there's areas in my life where it's good things, but it needs some pruning. And so along with that conviction, though, I also felt empowered and encouraged as my understanding of God's love was stretched and grown. And so my hope for us as a church this morning that we would, yes, hear God's word as conviction— calling us to live righteously, but I also hope that we hear it as a hope, as empowering to face those things that we wrestle with head on. So this morning I want to look at chapter 9, verse 24, and we're going to take it all the way through chapter 10, verse 13. Now I'm going to pull a little bit of a Hans here, and then I want to have a a longer introduction Um, You see, I started this teaching, I originally wanted to teach just through verse 24 through 27, but as I realized, contextually, it didn't really make sense. So I want to use the first part as a a long introduction, which is uh, really, in chapter 10, the first part of chapter 10, the the point that Paul is trying to make. And the reason I do this is because I want to try really hard this morning to make my main points say what the text is trying to say. I went to a conference this weekend uh, with David and Pat and Ian and Hans and John Cherry, and and one of the the speakers gave a a talk on what a healthy church looks like when it comes to expositional teaching. And what he said was the goal of expositional teaching is to make your points the text points. You're not putting yourself into the Bible. You're letting the Bible speak for itself, and you're making it accessible So that's my goal for us here today. Um, Before we hit the text, let me give you some context as to what Paul is writing here to the Corinthians. Paul is writing a letter in response to communication he's received from the Corinthian church. He's had people come back and say, hey, this is what's going on in Corinth. They've sent him some letters saying, hey, we've got these issues in our church. And Paul is writing in response to those things. And so the pillar of new... Uh, New Testament commentary says this about Corinth. Corinth was prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic, accustomed to visits by impressive traveling public speakers, and obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. The Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians 
with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. Well, I'll be gosh darn. I can't see how this could be relevant to a church in the United States in 2017. I mean, that's not things we're obsessed with, right? We're not obsessed with status, self-promotion, individual rights. We don't care about any of those things. It's not true, right? It's perfectly applicable to us. You see, Corinth was the hub of Roman pop culture. It was the home of the celebrities of the day. It even hosted the Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games. The church there was interested in all the benefits of God saving them, but was not at all interested in changing the way they lived their lives. Now, I'd like to break down this passage into three main parts. So if you're making an outline in your notes, chapter 9, 24 through 27 is what I'd like to call the what section. 9, 24 through 27 is the what section. Then we'll go into chapter 10, 1 through 11. That's the why section. And then we'll wrap it up with the how. That's verse 12 and 13. So, with that little bit of context, let's jump into the text. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Finally, a Bible analogy that I can understand. It's sports! Yay! None of this agrarian stuff. I don't understand farming. No offense, farmers. I just don't get it. I get sports. Thanks, Paul. The reason Paul used this analogy in this context is because the people, they hosted these games. So all of them would be familiar with runners running to get the prize. So here's Paul's premise and the setup for the rest of the passage. If we don't have endurance and self-control, we won't win the prize. I'll say that again. If we don't have endurance and self-control, we won't win the prize. So this begs the question then, what is endurance? As someone called to follow Jesus, this is what I think endurance means. This is what I think endurance means. The continually turning of our hearts and our minds and our actions away from sin toward Christ and conducting our lives in a way that brings God glory in all circumstances. Continually turning our hearts, our minds, and our actions away from sin and towards Christ and conducting, conducting our lives in a way that brings God glory in all circumstances. So, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to turn you to two places I think illustrate this idea of endurance nicely. Go ahead and flip with me, if you will, just to the right, to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, 19. We can kind of see where we're getting this idea of what endurance is. Revelation two, nineteen, And this is Jesus speaking to the church at Thyatira. 
I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. You see, Christ recognizes the church at Thyatira because they have turned their hearts, that's their love, their minds, it's their faith, and their actions, their works and service toward God consistently and have kept on in those things. That's endurance. Let's take a look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, we get this idea of endurance of throwing off the things that are weighing us down, that sin, turning our hearts and our minds back towards Christ, living to glorify him. The writer, writer of Hebrews is imploring his brethren to put aside the cares and sins of the world and follow Jesus. So those are the couple of texts where I'm drawing my definition of endurance from, in addition to what Paul is about to write in Corinthians. Now, there are a lot of reasons that the race analogy is a good one for this discussion on sin and idolatry that Paul is about to launch into. But I don't want to spend too much time on it because, again, I think Paul is using this first part as a setup for the rest of the text. Now, I will say one thing, though. I was reading an article last year around the Olympics. Last year was an Olympic year. And I was reading an article about Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps arguably the greatest athlete of all time. Um, and it was talking about the training regimen that he went to, went through to win all those medals. It said, leading up to the Olympics, he would spend anywhere from four to six hours every single day of the week in the pool. And on four or five days a week, he would have an extra weight room workout. So he was spending 10 hours a day, roughly, working out training for something, eating a very specific diet. Now, I'm not going to win any gold medals, and I'm not claiming to have that kind of discipline. But the question I ask myself when I was thinking about it is, man, how much training did I do this week, and what was I training for? Now, how many of us spent more time in front of the TV watching Netflix than we did reading our Bibles? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, no, I kind of set you guys up for that one. See, luckily I was studying for this teaching this week, so I was really holy. So I didn't have to raise my hand for that one. But on a normal week, I'd be right there with you. Not disciplined. See, Paul is, is saying, train yourselves for righteousness and justice. These pagans train ours for a temporary crown. What are we training for? We're training for something that's eternal. And we're not even willing to put in the work that these guys are training for something that's going to expire. The other thing that made me cringe with conviction this week was Paul's comment at the end of verse 27. The end of verse 27. He 
He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's like, oh, yikes. If Paul's worried about being disqualified. He's the A-team. I'm the water boy. What does that say about me? So after Paul has suckered us all in with the sports analogy, he goes on and hits us with the real point. Let's take a look at 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see, all of Israel experienced God's redemption. They all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and fire, and and the pillar led them out of slavery from Egypt into the wilderness. All of them were redeemed from slavery. But not all of them were saved. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And Hans has taught this idea a lot recently, and I think it's certainly worth revisiting and considering again. But as we've talked about in Isaiah, the people of Judah, if you would have asked them, hey, are you living rightly? All of them would have raised their hand. But I think the text in Isaiah has been very clear that God was not pleased with what he found. With most of them, he was not pleased. You see, the fruit of the way they lived their lives, these Israelites, it said otherwise, that they were not living righteously. And so what does the fruit in our life say? Does it show an increasing evidence that we have accepted the Lord's grace in our life? Or does it show evidence that we haven't made Jesus our top priority? You see, all of the Jews in the Corinthian church, especially the Jews, would have understood the picture that Paul was trying to paint. They were in slavery in Egypt. It was really bad. They were forced to do things they didn't want to do. God redeemed them. He set them free from slavery. So they should have lived in such a way that they could make it to the promised land. They should have ran that race across the wilderness with endurance. And they didn't. And the Jews would have understood, the Messianic Jews would have understood the work that Christ did on the cross as a second exodus. God died on the cross to free us from slavery. We should understand that. God died on the cross as a redemptive work to free us from this, the slavery of sin. So, for you and I, we should live in a way to get to the promised land. That's the setup that Paul is going for there. He says, don't repeat history. We see what happened to our brethren. They were redeemed. They didn't make it. They didn't have endurance. You all are redeemed. Live in such a way as to make it to the promised land. And Paul, in his text here, he references 
a number of these Old Testament stories. Let's take a look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell on a single day. Now this is referencing Numbers 25. The Israelites are invited by their pagan neighbors to participate in some temple ceremonies. And I don't know if the Israelites were just really naive or completely rebellious, but either way, it didn't go well. Started with dinner, things amped up, they had a few too many drinks, and next thing you know, 24,000 of them are dead. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now I want to turn to this story, if you will, with me. Um, Let's take a look at Numbers, chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Twenty-one, verse four. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, "Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food." Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among them. And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. You see, God had provided for the Israelites. They had food. They had water. Paul even references that. That water was Christ. Jesus was there with them. And they complained. Let's take a look at verse 11, 1 Corinthians. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul gives us these examples, and he says, these are written down for our instruction. Learn from them. Don't be like the Israelites. And you see, we see a great parallel here between the Israelites and the church. Because the Israelites were complaining about the food they had been given. Bread that it came down from heaven, water from the rock, quail. And they were complaining. They said, they loathe the food. It's disgusting. We can't handle it. What does Jesus say? Jesus says in John chapter 6, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He says a ton of other times in the book of John, especially, he is the bread of life. So what does he mean by this? Obviously, we're not actually eating Christ's flesh. Okay, we're not actually eating it. So forget that. 
But we are saying his life, his instruction should be flowing through our veins. It should be sustaining us. We should be living it every single day. But here's, here's what happens to me. When I hear Jesus say things like, it will be easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than it will be for a rich man to enter heaven. And I think about, man, hmm, I'm an American. Both my wife and I are working. That puts me in the top 0.001% of the world's population. Man, I hope I get into heaven. Or when I hear him say, um, if one eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to lose a body part than for your whole self to go to hell. I start to complain about the food that Jesus gives me to eat. I start to say, man, Jesus, this is hard. And that was Jesus' disciples' response. They said, Man, Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus didn't beg them to listen. He said, come, follow me in obedience. I say to myself, Jesus, this is so extreme. Cutting my hands off? Obviously not literally, but figuratively, dealing extremely with the sin and the idolatry in my life. I say, Jesus, come on, just give me a slap on the wrist. I don't want to deal with it extremely. And I start to grumble. And that grumbling leads to dismission. I dismiss the teachings that I don't like. You see, I really want to feel good. I want to feel comfortable. And so that's why when I think about the gospel, the gospel that I want is the gospel that I can find on Facebook or on Twitter. I want John 3:16, but I don't want 17 through 21. I want Romans 5:8, but I don't want the stuff that comes before it, 1 through 7. I want Ephesians 2:8-9, grace saves me. Praise the Lord. It's grace, baby. But I don't want to walk in those good works that Christ has prepared for me to do. Because it's not easy. It's not comfortable. And I want that shortened, cheap gospel that's comfortable. And I don't want to confront the sin in my life because I'm comfortable in it. I'd rather look at the speck in my neighbor's eye then pull the log out of my eye. Because you want to know why? Because I've made an addition in my house for my log. When I come home, it goes up on a little stand. It's comfortable. I don't need to deal with it. I've accommodated it. I'm so comfortable with my own sin and the idols that I've built up in my life I really don't even recognize them as sin and as idols anymore. In fact, uh, the authors, Siampa and Rosner, in their commentary on 1 Corinthians, said this about the, um, 
the Corinthians, in the context of the Corinthians dealing with their idolatry. He said, we are not innocent simply because we ourselves would not conceive our relationship to those other things in our society that fascinate us and compete for our loyalties and our priorities as idolatry. Just because I don't think they're idols, just because I don't think they're sin, doesn't mean that they're not. I'm going to say that again because I think it's very important. Just because I don't think it's sin, just because I don't think it's an idol, doesn't mean it's not. And I'm telling you guys the truth in, in as loving way as possible. Because I've wrestled with this this week. If you leave sin in your life unchecked, if you say to yourself, yeah, I think being harsh to my wife and kids is bad. If you think to yourself, yeah, I think that looking at pornography is bad. If you think to yourself, yeah, I think worshiping my money and my possessions is bad. If you think, yeah, I think that being a slave to my child's schedule is not the best. But if you don't take active steps to avoid those things, it's a recipe for hell. It's a recipe for hell. If you don't actively guard yourself against those idols and those sins, you're not running with endurance. You're not. You're being complacent and apathetic. You see, I was at the beach. This is kind of a funny story. Lighten the mood a little bit. Last week with my uh, in-laws, and my in-laws have what I would call an enthusiastic golden retriever. Now, if you know me, I'm not really a pet guy. I have a pet. He's really more of a rug. He just kind (laughs) of lays on the floor. Uh, But their dog... So we've got Charlotte, my two-year-old, and then my nephew, who's three weeks old. They were both at the house. So the rule was if the dog was upstairs with the kids, he had to be, she had to be on her bed. Now, as soon as my father-in-law stopped watching her directly with eye contact, started sneaking over, sneaking off of her bed. You can see that little army crawl that dogs do. And eventually she made it so far she licked my daughter in the face. No, Remy, down! And this continued on a couple times. And after a a couple of good doggy kisses, Ron had decided that he'd had enough. So he put the dog shock collar on. And he proceeded to watch the dog for the, the next half hour. And any time a paw crept over the bed. Guess what happened to it? It got shocked. That's an extreme way to deal with a problem. But do you think that dog got off its bed? No. No. And when we turn the, our back against the sin and the idolatry in our life, it creeps in and we don't even see it creeping behind us. We've got to take an extreme view of the sin and the idolatry in our lives. 
Paul warns the church about taking sin seriously earlier in 1 Corinthians. So let's go to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you haven't checked the sin in your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are not living a life of righteousness and justice, you don't get the kingdom. You see, Paul is not saying that we won't struggle with it. He's saying, you guys were there. You were those people struggling with those things. But you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified because of the sacrifice that Christ made for you. You've been made a new person. And so if we are being renewed into the image of Christ, and if we submit to his word and to the authority of his church, and we say sin has no place in our life, that's when we see growth. See, for me, the root of the idolatry in my life, as I wrestled with it this week, is the belief that I'm smarter than God. that my gospel is better than his. That the way I phrase it and the elements of it are better than what God has given to us in his word. I make being a Christ follower easy because I make Christ in my own image. I pick and I choose what I want to believe, what doctrines, what practices I want to follow, and I toss out the rest. And you want to know why I toss it out? Because it's hard. And I'm lazy and apathetic. And I'm not wanting to run with endurance. And I thought about it this weekend. I had conversation with the guys at dinner on Saturday night. And, and I realized, man, I don't want the gospel that says, I'm accountable for you. Because then, I'm responsible for your burdens, and you're responsible for mine. And that's taking difficulty to a whole nother level, right? It's extreme. But the truth of the matter is, the gospel says we are accountable for one another. We are our brother's keeper. We are responsible to one another to live out gospel restoration, redemption, reconciliation with one another. We are called to draw each other in so that we can hold each other accountable for the idolatry and the sin in our own lives. 
And I've tried to be transparent with you guys the last few times I've taught about things that I've wrestled with and invite you in to hold me accountable because I need that because I'm broken. And I need my brothers to lift me up when I want to stop running. I need my brothers to run alongside me to say, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Let's turn to Christ together. Let's run with endurance. Let's finish this race together. But you see, I hesitate to ask those tough questions because I don't want to know the answer because it's hard. And I don't deal extremely with this sin in my life because it's hard. So if you're in a place where you're wrestling with sin and idolatry in your life and you think, man, is everyone going through what I'm going through? Yes. Sin is difficult. We all wrestle with it. You're not alone. We're all running. We're all trying to run. And so, no, I don't have a little wooden statue wrapped in a Snuggie representing comfort that I worship. But I do worship it nonetheless. And what Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, the result of complaining about the standards that Christ has set forth in his word, I'm not making these things up. This is from the Bible. Right? We, are, we are accountable for one another. We are called to righteousness and justice. We've made that abundantly clear in Isaiah. But if we complain about those things, if we live, either if we're living in apathetic ignorance or active rebellion, it doesn't matter. If we don't rise to those standards, it's destruction that we're headed towards. It's, re- it's really what, what we're going towards. And Paul makes it very clear. We won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's extreme, but it's the truth. And I love you guys enough to tell you the truth. You've got to take it seriously. So, to sum up the why section, without endurance in our faith, that continual turning of our hearts our minds and our actions toward God and giving him the glory in all circumstances, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the what? We need endurance. We need endurance to inherit the kingdom, to win that prize. The why? Why? If we don't, we don't get the kingdom. So how? How do we do it? How when we struggle with these things in our life, how do we keep pressing forward? What gives us the strength to battle, to keep running when we're tired, to defeat our comfort? Let's take a look at the last section. Verse 12. Therefore, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, the first step to having endurance in our faith 
is realizing that none of us have arrived. We're not there. And over the past couple years of teaching, very intermittently, I've tried to give you guys a real picture of where I'm at spiritually. And I hope that I've conveyed to you guys that, man, even folks in leadership, we're still broken. We still wrestle with real things. But we're pressing on together. And that the only person that gives us that power is Christ. I'm justified only by the work of Jesus on the cross. That's the only thing that can cause me to rise up against my idolatry and my sin. Even so, I feel like James is speaking to me a lot. James chapter 4. Let's turn there. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is not is no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, I wonder if, if James is speaking to me directly when, when I read that, because I think, oh yeah, man, I do covet things. I do get jealous. I do fight and quarrel. But the beauty is, verse 6, God gives more grace. He gives us grace to overcome. But what's the key there? We've got to submit to the lordship of Jesus in our lives. If we don't humble ourselves and realize that, man, my gospel, it's not your gospel, God, and it's not nearly as good. It's not even close. If I don't submit myself and say, man, John Cherry, you're old. In the nicest way. Guide me. Is there any way in my life that's off course? Correct me. When I say, Pat, hold me accountable. When I say, David, man, look at me. Do I need correction? Do I need discipline? When I'm submitted to the authorities in my life, who we trust are living godly, biblical-centered lives, when we're submitted to that, that's what allows us to overcome those temptations. That's what allows us to overcome the sin and the idolatry when we're submitted to the lordship of Christ in our life and the leaders that he's put above us. And I think when my life seems chaotic, 
and I'm, comfort, and I'm confronted with the brokenness of the world around me, and I realize, man, in this life we will struggle. But then I remember, no matter what I'm facing, no matter how ridiculous I've been, God gives more grace when I repent in humility. But there's a real sense of waiting us there at the end. It should break our hearts when we sin. It should break our hearts when our brothers and sisters sin. Because if they keep going in that path, it leads to their destruction. Man, that sucks. I don't want to see any of you guys go to destruction. I love you guys. And I'm trying. I haven't arrived yet. But I'm trying to come to a place where I love you enough to tell you the truth. And I pray that we would all be on that level with one another, that we would love one another enough to tell each other the truth. The truth that we all need Jesus. We all need his lordship in our lives. But the awesome thing is, it's not the end of the story. Take a look back in 1 Corinthians. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, we started with endurance. We end with endurance. And in the middle, we see Jesus' grace and his love and his mercy. Now, what I'm not saying is put yourself in harm's way because God will miraculously give you a way to fight your temptation. What I'm saying is if our hearts are consistently turning towards God, if our minds and our actions are consistently turning towards God, he's going to be faithful to us. He sees our hearts. And he will allow us to defeat the temptation. If we allow him to be Lord in our life, he allows us to defeat those things that we struggle with. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, 6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, when we give Jesus the authority in our lives, We're no longer slaves to sin. It's that second exodus. He's brought us from death 
in slavery to sin to life. Doesn't mean we'll be perfect. But we certainly don't have to be slaves to our sin anymore. We are given the grace of God to choose our relationship with Jesus. It's by God's grace alone that we have endurance. Second Peter 1 through 3. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 10 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Brothers and sisters, how are we doing with that list? God has given us divine power to understand these things. What are we doing with that gift? Are we adding to faith with virtue? Are we adding self-control? Are we adding knowledge? Are we adding endurance? Are we adding godliness? Are we loving our brothers? I pray that we are being diligent to confirm our calling. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In other words, don't worry when you're running about running out of breath. Don't worry about dehydration. Don't worry about cramping up. Don't worry about how far away it is to the finish line. Run the race. Run the race and Christ will sustain you. Jesus is calling us to himself. He's saying, run. You can do it. I believe in you. I died so that you could run the race with endurance. Let me read you another passage. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. Zephaniah 3, 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Have endurance. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. 
You see, the thing that really broke me down this week as I was preparing, shocking, I know I broke down as I was preparing, it was this, the realization of how much more worthy Christ is than the idols I place on the throne of my life. You see, we truly can't get a picture of how good God is because of the sin and brokenness in our lives that clouds our vision. But when we consider the character of Christ, his patience, his grace, his loyalty, his faithfulness, his unfailing love, how could we not rejoice that he's offered us a place in his kingdom? You see, the idols we prop up in our hearts, they offer fleeting pleasure, gives way to emptiness and ultimately death. But Christ offers us peace, hope, joy, life itself. The peace that we experience in Jesus is a peace that not only guards us, but gives us the ability to move forward. I love what Jesus says in John to his disciples, John 14, 27. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And I realize that the peace that Jesus is offering me is not comfort. It's not. Peace is not equivalent to comfort. It's not the absence of suffering or conflict. But the peace that Jesus offers, that peace that guards our hearts and our minds, is the peace that I have that knowing that Christ already took the judgment for me. He took my sin upon himself, and he bore the wrath of God in my place with endurance for the sins that I've committed. So his peace then is not worldly, it's not transient, it's not that wreath that fades away, it's eternal. It's that eternal prize. It's knowing that by Christ's obedience and discipline, his endurance, I can stand before God in righteousness. See, it's through Christ that I know I have the power to endure. One last spot, if you want to turn with me to Philippians 2.12. We'll wrap it up here. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
Mission Fellowship, may we be a church that runs the race in such a way as to get the prize. May we be a church consistently working out our faith with fear and trembling. May we be a church submitted to Christ in humble obedience without grumbling and complaining. And may we be a a church that rejoices in the fact that Jesus, that Christ and Christ alone is the source of our endurance and the rock in which we can place all of our hope. Let us run this race together, holding fast to God's word, loving and serving each other more and more as we go. And may we continually turn our hearts, our minds, our actions towards Christ together. And may we be a church that lives in such a way as to glorify Christ in any and every circumstance. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the grace to understand your love for us. We thank you that you endured the cross, despised the shame, and are now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. We pray, Lord, for endurance this week. Empower us by your Spirit. Empower us by your people to cling tightly to you. And may we walk as an example to those around us. May we live lives marked by endurance and a love for you and your people. Amen. We've got communion set up on each side. Pat and David are going to be in the back to pray with you guys. As you're wrestling with sin and idolatry in your life, the Lord's table is a perfect place to come together as brothers and sisters, to confess those sins, to check in with one another, to hold each other accountable for living lives of righteousness and justice. And then to say, thank you, Lord, for dying for us, for shedding your blood so that we can be unified with you.